This is an ABC podcast. Stop everything. It's time for Stop Everything. Hello, I'm Beverly Wang, and this is a special highlight show. For the Easter long weekend. Benjamin Law is off this week, but you will be hearing from him later. He's never far from the consciousness, is he? Something else that's on the consciousness is a question. What exactly does a long weekend even mean in our world right now when we are meant to be staying put at home except for essential trips out? I really haven't got the answer for you. I'm wondering this myself. Maybe you've been thinking about it. And if you have a thought, send a message to artsonrn at abc.net.au. We always welcome your thoughts and recommendations. And while you ponder that existential question, I can offer something to you. Coming down the track this hour, conversations with comedians Fred Armisen and Josh Thomas, the art show's Namilla Benson, and singer-songwriter Julia Jacqueline. First up is Fred Armisen of Saturday Night Live, Portlandia, Documentary Now, and of course, he played Tino, the proprietor of the jazz club, where Ron Burgundy infamously played his legendary jazz flute solo in the movie Anchorman. Fred Armisen is also a musician, he's a drummer, and the band leader on Late Night with Seth Meyers. I spoke to him last year when he brought his stand-up show, Comedy for Musicians, but everyone is welcome to Australia. And when we spoke, he told me about his very systematic approach to comedy, which led to an earlier show, Stand Up for Drummers. I, I think of things as a sort of uh, a list. So it's almost like, and I don't have OCD, but it is like an OCD of thing like, of like, let me get this out of the way. Let me get this out of the way. Let me scratch this off. My, uh, it's almost like an errand list. And even the, the act of doing Stand Up for Drummers was something on my list. I was like, let me just do this and get it out of the way. I have a, a lot of jokes about drum kits and drummers. Let me just do this as a stand-up thing and uh, I'll be done. That's a very systematic approach to comedy. It seems a bit unusual, quite clinical actually. Uh, how does that gel with uh, you know collaborators or making comedy with other people? It works well because not everyone's like that. And I think the best collaborations come from sort of opposites. So where someone has one style it's it's I've, I've found the right people who we've been able to produce enough content that so you've you've worked with carrie brownstein with yeah. bill Hader, mm -hmm. with my rudolph in one of your latest projects what is their style like bill is like an expert photographer he's good at like really capturing something in a flash he really captures a feeling an impression he this he has this way of sort of like just expressing a lot in a very short amount of time. So with the way that we work together, I can't describe what I do, but for some reason it works really well. And then with Maya, she takes her time, which is great. I'm sometimes a little bit more in a rush, but she has a real, uh, very pleasing, I would say a musical way of doing comedy. And how about Carrie Brownstein? Carrie Brownstein is a, a super genius. She's so intelligent and says so much... She's so many, so much like there's like ethics and logic. She's just so brilliant that like in that role, I become the one that's a little more of a sort of impulsive and like I'll just try to think of something. When I think of something for Portlandia, it's a little crazier than the, the stuff that I usually do. Like there's no logic to it and Carrie's good at sort of um, – wrangling that. Okay. Now, the thing that you definitely don't focus on, I think, in your comedy is politics. Yeah. You, you have done an impression of Barack Obama on Saturday Night Live, but none of the stuff that you're known for ever veers into politics. It's quite gentle. Is that a intentional thing? It's purely that I'm not good at it. There are th so many things that I'm not good at with comedy. I'm not good at uh, storytelling. I'm not good at punchlines. I'm not good at, like, you know, an ending to a joke that's going to just kill. And I'm not, I'm not good at talking about politics. There are comedians who are. Patton Oswalt is great at it. Janine Garofalo. There are people who can really just do it. And they're able to, like, come up with, like, a thought that it doesn't sound preachy. It doesn't say, it just sounds just right. And I like being in the audience for that. I like hearing it. And that's what they do. I just, I have, I don't have a grasp on even, on how to begin I don't even know how to start a political joke. One of the things I think that you're really good at, though, is bringing very cerebral, 
odd stuff, I would say, to mass audiences. It's kind of like you are doing the Portlandia of comedy, if mm -hmm. you know what I mean. Uh, so what are you what are you tapping into? You say you're not good at, at talking about politics and comedy. What makes you good at doing the Portlandia kind of weird, nerdy stuff and then making it funny for so many people? Well, Oh, again, so first of all, thank you very much. That's really nice. I want to record that and just play well, it Well, this is myself. available on podcast, so please yeah, subscribe, download. You can listen to it as much as you like. Okay. Yeah, that, do it. That was, <laughs> I'll do it right. I'm gonna and send it to your friends, right all of your famous uh, friends. Um, how am I able to? I think what it is is that I have a suspicion that there are many people like me. So when I roll into Melbourne, I'm here today, and I drove down the street that was like, I fell in love with it. I was like, what is this street? It was like very like cool stores and like record stores and like it. Oh, that could be any street in Melbourne. It's that sort of like someone did, was it the north side? Was it? Oh, yeah, right. High Street, North Coast. Yeah. So that section exists already, but I am like, oh, this is my special area. So that feeling of like connecting to something, I'm like, well, if, so, if this has already been built, clearly other people feel this way. So I think it's in that zone. And then also the way artsy things reached me means that there is like a mass market for it. Like I, when I was a kid and when I was into John Waters or Talking Heads or punk rock in general, it wasn't, I didn't go digging through alleyways for all this stuff. It was, you know, in the movies, it was on the radio, on TV. These are things that existed for mass. So I'm like, I think there's, there is a way that this stuff can be for the, I'm going to say the masses. So you're never afraid that some teeny tiny detail that you recognize and you replicate in something like documentary now is not going to be something that other people will relate to? So far, everything I've done, people have related to it. So I'm not bragging. I'm just saying that like, it seems, you know, even getting on Saturday Night Live, those are like kind of weird characters. I, the I art even, dealers one is one that really sticks with me that you do with my Rudolph. That is very weird. Very weird, and somehow it resonated with somebody. So, what do these people do again? Okay, they're art dealers, and they are no different than you or me. They hired me to make a website for their gallery. So. Ryan! You're right on time. Come in, please. <laughs> hey, thanks for having us over, Mr. Schoner. <laughs> it's Nuni. Hello. This is my wife, Nuni. On Portlandia, we, I, we did a sketch about uh, a guy who has like a home recording studio. And that's a sketch specifically for people who have recording studios. So it's a very, uh, again, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying it's so, it's so thin yeah. of a concept. And people come up to me often who are like, hey, you know, I have a studio and I can't believe you did this sketch. So I, I'm just guessing that there must be a lot of studios out there. Lance, hey, I just put in some new equipment at the recording studio. You want to come check it out? Bring your beer. So I put the whole studio down here. This one's great. They use this kind on pet sounds. You know pet sounds. This is Stop Everything, and we're talking to Fred Armisen. You'd know him from Saturday Night Live. You'd know him from Portlandia. So many things. He was Tino in Anchorman, the jazz flute scene, the famous jazz flute scene. Uh, we're talking about finding mass humor in niche topics, Fred. So when you make documentary now, how do you brainstorm with Bill Hader and finding like the weirder and like weirder subject matter to spoof? That's a little different. There's a bunch of us. There's... I don't know, six, seven people who contribute. It's a very weird show to make in that we do most of it through email. We have one day, one or two days where we pitch stuff to each other, but the rest, everyone lives in different cities and everyone's Not even busy. a group chat, you're emailing. That's pretty old school. Yeah, we're a little old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then uh, those, that's a different approach in that we don't look for obscure. We, that is a little more traditional and it's like what is going to work to have a joke in what, what's going to be funny so we've come up with a lot of documentaries that didn't work were a little too depressing so every once in a while someone will come up with something and, and that includes Seth Meyers he's, he's great at picking mm. out 
a type of uh, genre for documentary. Well, maybe you could draw on your own work history because for a time you were a drummer for the Blue Man Group. Yeah. Which is, you weren't in blue. You weren't one of the men in blue. No, no. You were a drummer. You just were yourself. But Oh, oh no, there's a different makeup. Uh, it's like they do sort of red and green and yellow um, like line drawing makeup. Okay. So, so they're lit by black light, so it looks like um, stick figures above the stage. That is such a weird thing, the Blue Man Group. Have you ever thought about satirizing that in documentary, or, or do you even draw on your observation of them doing their thing in any of the stuff that you've done? I had a different reaction to that. For, uh, it's, it might be too... It's been done a little bit, and and also like it might be too easy because it's performance art and, and sort of... That they're, they're already doing humor, so doing comedy on comedy is kind of hard, I think. Um, but I learned something else from... Uh, that was... I played for Blue Man Group uh, right as my band was breaking up. Right after my band broke up, and I didn't, didn't know where my life was going, but, like, I learned from Blue Man Group that audiences really want to be entertained. So I would see all these audiences, and they were... It was sold out all the time, and it was so crowded, and I was like... Yeah, how do you explain their popularity, their enduring popularity? I don't think anyone can explain it. It's just, it's just, it's just like that. I mean, they do it in different cities. They go on tour, and they figured something out because yeah. it's not as easy as saying, "Oh, it's because they don't speak." It's not as easy as saying it's because they play the drums. It, there's something else going on that is is just it somehow works. And I mean, I get it, and I love it. I love watching Blue Man Group. This is your first time in Australia, Fred. Oh yes. Okay. Well, welcome. Thank you. Now, I heard you tell a joke that you love to hear Australians complain. Yeah. If you come to the right place, yeah. have you observed any fantastic Australian complaining thus far? I haven't because that seems to happen during travels. Like when I go, first of all, I want to say I love Australia. I've been wanting to come here for a long time. Uh, anyway, Australians complain is when I go to other countries. So if I'm in Italy, um, it's like name dropping countries. Hey, when I'm in Italy. But when I'm in a foreign country, I'm too scared to complain. I'm always like, oh, Here's, you know, the food was late. That's okay. Don't worry about it. But Australians are so confident that I feel I really trust them. That's so interesting because Australians think that Americans are very confident. No. There's a mutual kind of confidence appreciation going on. No. I feel like Americans are, they're a little more neurotic and like, hey, is this okay? Not as much as the British, but like there is a sort of like, hey, even the tone, the tone of their voice, the volume, there's like a very like, it's loud, but not too loud. It's like, it's like somehow loud and soothing. And I always, I'm on their side. I'm like, yes, they should be speaking for everyone in the world. Wow, Fred, I think you need to listen to a lot of breakfast radio while you're in Australia <laughs> and come back to me and tell me whether that revises your view on Australian confidence <laughs> even and that. complaints. Even the morning radio is, there's something pleasant in it. There's something like, I'm like, I'm like, you know what? I'm glad you guys are doing morning radio. That's comedian Fred Armisen, and you can watch Stand Up for Drummers on Netflix. I'm Beverly Wang. This is Stop Everything. And next up, Ben's back for a pop culture confession with Josh Thomas. Pop culture confession. Pop It's our award-winning theme for Pop Culture Confessionals, which means it's time to confess with writer, comedian and actor Josh Thomas. Now, you know Josh from the critically acclaimed ABC comedy Please Like Me. You might not know that Josh now lives in LA where he's working on a new show called Everything's Going to Be Okay about a 25-year-old man who becomes guardian to his teenage half-sisters following their father's death. Of course, it is also a comedy. Yeah, sounds hilarious. Now, recently, we just happened to run into Josh here at the ABC, and Josh started telling us about how he had just finished watching all of Seinfeld. And Ben, you and I looked at each other and said, mm -hmm. you need to come on to Stop Everything and tell us your thoughts. So, Josh, welcome to Stop Everything. 
G'day. How are you doing? We're great. We're great. Thanks for joining us and and sharing your uh, recent Seinfeld viewing <laughs> with us. Can I just ask what brought this about? Well, it's a funny show. <laughs> I don't know. If it's really funny. It's funny when Kramer walks through the door and then George gets mad. <laughs> I really like it. But also, I like.、Um, I I was making a show this year. I don't really like watching. Shows when I make shows because you can like just feel the camera crew and、um, I don't know I just don't enjoy it. So if it's like a new show that's actually really good, like I tried to watch Fleabag but like I couldn't enjoy it, so I had to like wait till I finished production.、Hmm. So、um, I just got real deep. Like one year I got real deep into Cupcake Wars and I just kept watching Cupcake Wars. And this year I got real deep into Seinfeld. I watch every episode, and like the production's so crappy on Seinfeld, actually, that like <laughs> you just can't, like you can't be critical of it. You just, I'm just like there with Jerry and Elaine and Kramer, just thrilled that they're wanting to hang out with me. <laughs> so this is comfort viewing. To clarify, you have watched Seinfeld before, I'm assuming. What, what's your history with the show here? I mean, I like grew up with it. You know, like I'd watch it like when I was a kid at like 6 p.m. on like Channel 10. Before Neighbors, I think it was,、um, but I definitely hadn't seen all of them. There were like episodes that I hadn't seen before, and、um, that was just like so thrilling. Josh, you and I are of a similar vintage, similar generation, so we would、mm-hmm. have been watching Seinfeld, I imagine, when we were teenagers. What's it like now watching Seinfeld as an adult with a rewatch? Are there details you hadn't noticed before? Has it aged well? What's it like now? Well, one of the things I've been suspicious of is that Jerry Seinfeld isn't a good guy. <laughs> That's the other thing. So I started. I watched comedians in cars getting coffee, and if you ever see him like talk to a woman. He like treats them like they're aliens, and he's just like baffled, and he does like a lot of very gentle,、um, homophobic stuff. Like he just thinks gays are so funny. Like he's just like a teenage boy who just giggles at like boys being effeminate. Like he'll like open the door, and a guy will have like a small dog, and he'd be like, "Oh, that's a small dog for a for a man. He's probably gay," and then just be delighted for the next eight minutes at the fact that that that's a gay thing to do. There's a lot of stuff in those Seinfeld. Like, there's a lot of funny stuff. There's the puffy shirt. There's the big Costanza wallet for sure. But then there are lots of moments where, like you say, Jerry never seems to know what to do with his girlfriends or have any interest in them. Like in like the third episode, he does this stand-up routine about um laundry detergents. Why lo- laundry detergents always advertising getting blood out of clothes? Why are they always advertising getting blood out of clothes, Jerry? Menstruation, Jerry. Menstruation, Jerry. Like he just doesn't know about girls. Oh, this episode that I watched. And he's talking to Kramer about how Kramer's never got a girl pregnant, and he's like, "What? You never slipped one through to the goalie?" Jerry, <laughs> you ever have your sperm count checked? No, why should I? We're boxers. <laughs> you ever get a woman pregnant? I'm sorry, Kramer. Those records are permanently sealed. <laughs> What would you say if I told you I never impregnated a woman? Really? You never slipped one past the goalie in all these years? <laughs> Boy, I'm surprised. You've slept with a lot of women. A lot. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's just some like nonchalant abortion humor there from Jerry, and he just just seems to really not like women's women talking. So, Josh, you said you started watching Seinfeld with the suspicion that maybe Seinfeld is not such a great guy.、Mm-hmm. After watching all the seasons, where did you land on that question? Well, it's kind of like it's kind of an interesting show because they do a lot of really dodgy stuff. And it's like always just not that bad. Like they've got that.、Um, not that there's anything wrong with that mm. episode, mm. where they just say like, "Not that there's anything wrong with that." Which became a catchphrase. Yeah, yeah, and、uh, which really I think summed up actually the '90s attitudes towards gay people. It was very、mm-hmm. like、uh, in that episode he says like, "I don't mind what people do in the privacy of their own bedroom." It was very like.、Um, Kind of like we've decided gays are, are fine, but no one was actually comfortable with them. So that episode、um, was specifically about being gay. It was about、um, they accidentally tricked this journalist into thinking that Jerry and George were gay, and she puts it in the paper,、right. and then everyone thinks they're gay. <laughs> Which <laughs> so, I mean, sure. Josh, this and, show、uh, then becomes a problematic fave. You're watching it as comfort viewing for something that's familiar, that's something that you've grown up with. When you go back, do these problematic moments mean that it undermines your comfort levels, or do you kind of lean into the complexities of what it was? I kind of like because, like these days. You know, I do kind of like everything's really woke, right? Which is nice, and it、uh-huh. is like better. But I kind of like going back a little bit, where they're kind of 
being the kind of like like people are homophobic actually, and see people can be like well intentioned homophobic, and mm-hmm. I feel like that's a thing you're not really allowed to put on TV anymore. And it felt like kind of honest to me. Like I know those people, but sometimes TV now kind of like washes them away. Like if you have someone on TV now that's like even a little bit homophobic, the ramifications are so huge and they're so unlikable. And one of the things that's interesting about Seinfeld is everyone on that show is so unlikable. <laughs> You're not meant to be on their side. So it's kind of, they kind of get away with a lot more stuff because you're not really meant to think that George is decent. So when George is like really worried that everyone thinks he's gay, I don't know, I don't find that that offensive. But then on sort of also I do. And I don't know, that's kind of interesting to me. I kind of like um, going back to like having these people that maybe aren't like uh, they're not good guys or they're not villains, but they have like problematic opinions because that feels very real. And I feel like these days it's kind of hard to like live in that space when you're making a show. Thinking of the context of the time, 1989 to 1998, there was no streaming, there were no other options. And the, the fandom that accompanied Seinfeld, it was massive. An episode of Seinfeld would air, and then the day after, the weeks after, people would go around quoting what had been said in the previous week. You don't really see that as much anymore. And I'm I'm just wondering, Josh, as someone who makes TV, do you look at any part of the craft of Seinfeld and think, oh yeah, that's something that we still do when we make TV, or oh gosh, like we've really moved on from there? I mean, Seinfeld stacks up to, like, now. As far as, like, narrative storytelling goes, it absolutely does. The first couple of seasons feel, like, very current. They're, like, very small stories. They kind of got a surprising amount of emotional weight to them or kind of, like, insight into, like, real humans. They're not always homophobic and racist, but... I don't know. Television now is so niche, which is great. Like you can find something that really represents you. I think the TV that Ben and I make are like really good examples of that. Actually, like you can like find something that is like speaks to you and your world a lot more specifically than you used to be able to. And that's kind of the challenge in the '90s, I guess, as well as like that show was so broad and it was like. Yeah, it was massive, and it was really talking to, like, the dominant culture, which is, like, straight white people, which I I think you have to do on network TV in the 90s, because there are only, like, so many channels. I don't know if you had to, but they felt like they had to. But at the same time, Seinfeld was seen as really groundbreaking then, because it was this show about nothing. They had Elaine, Mm -hmm. who was this incredible character who was an ex of Jerry's, and they were friends, and she was not a sex object. She was one of their equal friends. What do you think, Ben? Do you think, like, as a TV maker, I'm going to bring you in here, do you see any lessons or legacy from Seinfeld that carries through to today? Well, one of the things that Josh is talking about are flawed characters on TV who can be flawed and we're not endorsing their flaws. In fact, we're exploring them, which I think Seinfeld was really a pioneer of. Like each of these characters, George, Jerry, Kramer and Elaine, they're kind of, as Josh said, uh, flawed, sometimes horrifically flawed creatures and we're (laughs) laughing at their problematic stance. I mean, the next step beyond Seinfeld is Curb Your Enthusiasm and Larry David takes it up a notch. And I'm curious, you know, more personally, Josh, as a writer, when you're approaching Please Like Me, when you're writing Everything's Going to Be Okay, your new show, do you now see Seinfeld like as an influence? Do you see the way it's influenced your comedy, your writing, what you lean into when you go into work? Seinfeld influenced everything. Like, there are opinions in Seinfeld that are still just people's opinions. Like, you'll still go out and sit across from somebody and they'll start telling you their opinion. And it's like a stand-up routine from 1993 that Seinfeld did. <laughs> you know, like, it still happens. The, the thing about Seinfeld is it is, like, the later seasons get quite wacky when they start, like, killing their neighbor's cats and trying to, like, figure out how they can get all these bottles and, like, make the money from the refund. They get, like, quite wacky. But the earlier seasons are really aiming for honesty, actually. And that is, I think, at the moment, really valuable. And I think it's why it stacks up for me now. Like, Friends I don't really like and Friends I don't really watch because it feels, like, very false to me. And it feels very forced. But Seinfeld, I just, like, really believe those people. I really believe Elaine. I really believe Jerry. I really believe Kramer, which is incredible because he's insane. And I believe their storytelling. That's comedian Josh Thomas sharing his retrospective review of Seinfeld. Please Like Me, the series that he made which first ran on ABC, is now available to stream on Netflix. And there are limited episodes also available right now on iview. Season one of his new series, Everything's Gonna Be Okay, is streaming on Stan now. This is a special episode of Stop Everything Highlights. 
Next up, we're heading to one of our favorite destinations, the internet, with one of our favorite arts and RN people. Science officer, report. Captain, it's a wormhole. It looks really interesting. It's just too fascinating. We're being dragged in. Get your Melways out. We're navigating the side streets and laneways of the internet. Melways. That's a very analogue Gen X reference of you, Beverly. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and our guest and guide is a new but already very cherished member of the family, Namila Benson. Now, Melbourne listeners, you will absolutely know Namila from her many years broadcasting on 3 FM. And in 2020, we're so pleased that she joins us as the new presenter of The Art Show, Namila Benson, welcome to Stop Everything. Oh, wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. So we would love to get to know you via an internet journey. So where are you taking us today? Look, the world of black YouTube is where we're going to be heading. Um, So, yeah, you kind of need to strap yourselves in because there's so many places to go with it. It's mainly for... I guess makeup and beauty vloggers who are also social and political commentators, just mixing up all the good stuff that I love, really. Okay, Namila, let's get an origin story there. So, Black YouTube, but more specifically, Black Makeup Tutorial YouTube. I'm new to the world of Makeup Tutorial YouTube generally, (laughs) and this in particular is new to me. So, how did you start and why did you turn to YouTube specifically for help? Well, my background is Melanesian, so I'm from Papua New Guinea and trying to get uh, black makeup when you're a sister based in Melbourne was not only really hard, it was very, very expensive. And so I just really needed to find cheaper, better, more accessible and appropriate options for makeup. So I turned to the world of YouTube and it just opened up this whole amazing presence of these powerful black women who sort of live by the hashtag of uh, support a sister and they're shouting out black owned and black designed makeup companies and I really love wearing my bling there's fashion companies and it was just amazing to be able to tap into a world where people really intimately understood um, the relevance not only of representation but finding products that actually match your aesthetics Sounds like it was a real moment of revelation for you that it really opened up a lot of options. It really was. And also, too, as silly as it sounds, you know, I think there's this whole thing that when you're a part of dominant culture, in particular... Mm whiteness, you know, seeing yourself represented everywhere is something that you can so take for granted. And for me, it was really quite thrilling to come across other black women, other sisters who were just kind of doing their thing as I was, you know, like very proud, very, very proud of their cultural heritage and shouting out their cultural roots, but also being a part of the mainstream and urban landscapes that we each live in as well. And just, you know, things like hair and hair texture, like that is not something that I can talk about even with my dearest white friends, because they don't really understand the many, many layers that are involved with trying to find products that match your hair and even bases for makeup that match your skin. And it's just things like that. I mean, we want to look good as well. And definitely with hair, I can say that when it comes to black hair, because it is very politicised, there's a lot of curiosity around it in a lot of ways. But the only way I can explain it for my white friends to understand is that hair for a black woman is like weight for a white woman. It's so intimately tied into our sense of self, how we see ourselves, how we feel about ourselves as we navigate and move in the world. Namila, as I hear this, I'm reminded of conversations with black friends who perform on stage and on screen and how often people who do makeup just get their makeup wrong uh, and how little resources are out there when it comes to beauty tips. I mean, can you give us more of a sense of the absence of black makeup tutorials and advice out there in mainstream media before YouTube came along? It was just, it was like a cosmetic desert really as as far as you know you would get say 50 shades of beige but then maybe just a stock standard 
three, you know, shades right at the back mm. end. And, and say for myself, the um, base colour in my skin, for instance, is a yellow. So I needed that. And it was just very murky kind of makeup. Like we'd end up looking like zombies and ghosts. Oh That's a bit of a joke, you know, with sisters is that we look like we're grey and it's like, oh, who invited the walking dead sister to this <laughs> to this throw-up party, you know? Like it just, it was not a good look. And so I first came across Jamie and Nikki who uh, were a YouTube couple. They've now gone their separate ways. But Nikki is a South Sudanese sister that lives here in Australia and she is a model. Those of you who watch my vlogs, you guys know I love me a good nude lipstick. But as a dark-skinned woman, it can be quite challenging trying to find a nude lipstick that looks nice on our complexion without making us look ashy so I've just put together my top five favorite ones that I've enjoyed over the years and ones that have worked really well for me and hopefully they'll work well for you as well you know like coming across Nikki and seeing another sister who lives in Melbourne who would be looking absolutely stunning with her hair and her makeup and she would start sharing tips about different makeup brands that she'd come across and then through watching her channel I also came across a Canadian um, vlogger called Tony Daly because I was looking for Afro pick earrings. Hey guys, today I'm working on freshly washed hair that I allowed to dry overnight in these twists. And I'm just going to take down each twist and moisturize with water before I start styling. I'm parting off sections for flat twists that I'm going to make going forward. You know, like when you're living in a country where you just so crave to see yourself in so many different ways, even wearing bling for me, I wanted specifically unique black um, earrings and, you know, even the lipstick colours and all that kind of stuff because... The messaging that we're given by society is that um, really we don't matter in a lot of ways. And I remember there was one particular retail outlet um, that I had an exchange with. Um, so it's a shop and they cater to the body um, and they use lots of imagery of very dark skinned black women, but then they don't cater to the makeup. And when I went in and asked them about that, they said, well, you know, um, there's not really a demand for it. Mm. And it's like, well, you need to do reset on your marketing team because actually there is. Well, meanwhile, you're walking in there showing them the demand. Well, meanwhile, <laughs> we exist on a land that is, you know, like it's black people <laughs> who are traditionally of this land. 65,000 so. years. Now, Namilla, you were talking about the selection or lack thereof and mm. many, many shades of beige. That's something that one of your other vlogger picks picks up on, makeup artist and beauty blogger Jackie Ina. Here she is in a video really letting loose on the beauty industry while she's doing her makeup. I've experienced a lot of really messed up things, being not only a makeup artist, but also a beauty vlogger. But you know what though, honestly, I'm tired. Especially in light of like what's been happening recently. I mean, you've got makeup brands that will launch, you know, 20 shades of beige, everything in between. You've got eggshell, you've got cream, you have iPhone extension cord, but then they'll throw in two dark shades like Mahogany Espresso and then be like, here, y'all always begging for something here just to shut y'all up. Mahogany Espresso, I'm sure a familiar, familiar, familiar <laughs> name to you. iPhone extension cord. <laughs> Brilliant. Jackie Ina is actually quite a, a powerful commentator. She says things about race in that video while she's putting on makeup that you will not hear in most broadcast media in Australia. She really goes there. How does this speak to you when you hear it? It is absolutely powerful. And just seeing her rise as a YouTuber, she is such a a heavyweight now when it comes to fashion and cosmetics. And she's really taken it upon herself with her platform to take on companies, take them to task if they don't represent or feature or cater to black women. And I have been able to come across so many products that make me feel so good about myself and connect me to a broader black sisterhood and a global community, you know, and that's something that really just can't be underestimated at all. And it's beautiful seeing her shouting out other black sisters that I've been able to come across as well. Nima Tang was another one who I came to know through, Jackie Ina. Um, there's Patricia Bright, who's over in the UK. So it's just really great that you can 
can feel you're a part of this really beautiful and wonderful sisterhood that actually caters and cares to inform you about not only that your aesthetic is beautiful and that it's important, but there's products there for you as well. So, Namila, how do you see these vloggers pushing the industry? Is the industry listening to them and waking up? They really are. And they're feeling incredibly answerable to these women and as an extension to the community because now, you know, people like to throw around the term diversity, but it's no longer, you can't talk about it in shallow tokenistic ways. You actually need to back it up with tangible action. And these young women have so much power and influence and people actually listen to them and, and not just uh, black folks either, you know, like they get huge followings from uh, people from all backgrounds. But yeah, they're really, really taking on huge cosmetic companies as well as fashion companies and big changes are being made and boy, like they rock armies behind them. If mm. someone messes up, you know, we live in this era, unfortunately, with social media where you will be dragged and dragged they will be if they don't cater to blackness. So Nima Tang, Jackie Ina, these are huge influential forces both reflecting and it also sounds like reflecting the needs and the changing needs of the beauty industry. At the same time, Namilla, how do you answer critics who want to dismiss all of this stuff as, as frivolous simply because it's about makeup? I mean, people can say that, but I, mean, I don't like... I don't try to engage with people that are going to be dismissive or deny that there's actual issues there. I get that it doesn't affect them, it doesn't impact them, so therefore they don't want to have to think about it. And I know also that people say, well, why would you want to measure up to standards of whiteness and, and you know, buying into capitalism, etc.? But the thing is... For me, I want to look good. Um, I want to feel proud in how I represent my blackness and who I am culturally as a Pacific Islander woman. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, people can be dismissive and I actually take it. That's totally fine, but I don't care. Namilla Benson is the host of The Art Show. You can listen to a whole hour of her every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. on RN's The Art Show or anytime, of course, if you subscribe to The Art Show podcast. And we will put some links to some of the YouTubers Namilla mentioned on the Stop Everything program page. For the past year and a bit, Australian singer-songwriter Julia Jacqueline has been touring her latest album, Crushing, pretty much non-stop. Crushing has been embraced by critics and fans alike, not just for Julia Jacqueline's beautiful voice, but also for her introspective lyrics, as she rediscovers herself and her body in the ruins of a failed relationship. Prior to Crushing, Jacqueline was touring her debut album, don't let the kids win. And she was on the road so much. She said in one interview that toward the end of that tour, she felt like a cabaret performer performing versions of herself from the past. So when I spoke to her in February, I wanted to know whether constant performing has changed her relationship to the deeply personal tracks on Crushing. Luckily, I'm not at that stage yet because I'm sure that happens with most people's first records because I mean, by the time you record your first album, it's basically just a collection of songs from your whole entire existence and you've just picked the best 11 or whatever. And then I recorded it and it didn't come out for a year and a half or two years after I recorded it. So the time of writing those songs and touring them was like so huge. Whereas with Crushing, it wasn't like that at all. I finished a lot of the songs like in the week prior to recording it and then it came out less than a year later and yeah I kind of started touring it straight away so they still feel kind of fresh and I still like them which is good <laughs> let's listen to some music here's head alone I don't want to be touched all the time I raise my body up to be mine yeah I don't want to be touched all the time
Julia, that lyric, you can love somebody without using your hands, I think when I heard it, I actually stopped what I was doing and I pulled out my phone and I tapped it out. You can love somebody without using your phone, without using your hands, because I wanted to... <laughs> without using without your using phone. Your How phone? about that? You can uh, also yes, do you, that. Yes, you can do that. <laughs> uh, it stopped me in my tracks. And there are so many references to the body. The first song on Crushing is called Body, so it's hard not to not ask you about your body, given all the references. Is it an autobiographical body that you're writing about, or is it the wider body politic of women's lived experiences that you're writing about? Oh, it's definitely about my own experience and my own sense of self and my body in particular. Um, I think it's just indicative of how much those experiences are shared by um, greater womankind, I guess, that it kind of might sound like I was writing something political in that way. But no, it was it was just kind of not intentional at the time, but obviously something I was feeling a lot. And I was just touring a lot and, yeah, not really standing up for myself physically or emotionally in situations. And that kind of came out in the music, mm. I guess. Yeah. And in the process, do you feel like your relationship with your yourself and how you stand up for yourself and speak up for yourself has changed? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the reason I don't get bored of these songs at the moment is because I think when I wrote them, I was so downtrodden and they were kind of more aspirational songs in that I didn't feel that powerful and strong and, and sure of myself at the time, but I kind of hoped that eventually I would grow into that. And so singing these songs a lot has kind of helped that process for me. I guess I was just kind of writing them for a, like a future me that I hoped I would become. And yeah, I think I've, I'm you like are that future me 75% now. there. It's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? That because inevitably, because you have written about your body so much in your songs and your need for space for your body, what happens is that in interviews like this, you get asked about your body a lot. Mm. Yeah, it's super cool. <laughs> but I did it to myself, so it's okay. <laughs> I think we should hear some of Body Now. line and body where you sing, do you still have that photograph? Would you use it to hurt me? I think it's probably one of the few songs I've heard where there's been an overt reference to revenge porn. Mm. And I think that's relatable to a lot of your fans, not often heard in music. Why was it important that you included that reference? Um, because I think any kind of criticism for people whose photos end up getting publicized or shared... Um, non-consensually it's just ridiculous in this day and age when we all communicate via our phones so to kind of shame women for sending intimate photographs to people that they trust is just a complete misunderstanding of how humans have have evolved and how we connect and a lot of the time as well younger girls are sending these photos to people that they trust and they care about um, because that feels safer than potentially actually being in that situation themselves physically with their body. So it can also be a form of self-protection and a way to be intimate with somebody without putting yourself um, in an uncomfortable situation or in maybe a situation that you're not ready to be in. And I think that's really beautiful and should be talked about more often and protected and I have, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just, it's such a normal part of life now. It's such a normal part of how we have relationships with people and to keep talking about it, like it's this thing that only like 
I don't know, that bad people do is just such a joke, you know. And a lot of people that are criticising women who send those photos, like 100% have received them. I just think it's it's hypocritical and I think it's just a normal part of our lives now and, yeah, it kind of felt nice to just put that line in. I didn't even think that much about it and so it's been really cool to see that people... People really responding to that? Yeah, yeah, because I didn't didn't kind of write it and be like, oh, this is going to really just, like, make people feel something I just that that's that was a part of my life and I yeah you're hearing from singer-songwriter Julia Jacqueline she's back in Australia after a long stint touring overseas with her second album Crushing Julia you're here with your backup singer and guitarist Jacob Diamond and you're going to perform a song for us what's the name of the song uh the song's called Convention Do we really wanna give him the microphone? You know that he'll keep talking long after everyone's gone home. We'll have to pay to keep the lights on, and that bill will arrive just when all our savings have. Can I say something? Can I give advice? Just hit the main switch so we can sleep well tonight. Standing got me six rows from the front And my dinner companion was a little drunk Says he buys the paper but he reads between the lines I can show you how I do it Why don't you come back to mine Please say something, I'm dying for your advice I can tell you won't sleep well if you Jacqueline with Jacob Diamond performing Convention for Stop Everything. I wanted to ask you about that song, Convention, and the lyrics where you say you want to give some advice about turning off someone's microphone. Mm. Who are you talking about? Yeah, well, this is... Well, actually, the reason it's called Convention is because I was in my mum's kitchen. I was listening to the Republican Convention. So years ago, this is like before Donald Trump was elected or even elected as the candidate and I just I was like he was going on about whatever he goes on about which we all know and I was just I just had this sudden feeling of like oh like why do these people get microphones and platforms there are so many people in the world who have so many good things to say and are so intelligent and have so much to contribute but I'm just so sick of being like force-fed people's opinions that just do not matter and are not thought out and just completely offensive and horrible 
But I was like, well, that's okay though, because he won't, he won't win. One of the shows or a performance that kind of went viral was one that you did at a Lana Del Rey show in Denver last year where you performed Don't Know How to Keep Loving You. I guess the question everybody wants to know is what was that like? Yeah, it was great. It was really nice and she was really kind and generous and I don't know, she was so relaxed and cool that it didn't feel as insane as I imagined it would have felt. Um, she was just very open and just super keen to have me on and she was super like casual about it as well. Like she picked the song like two hours before we performed it, um, which was one of my songs, which was so nice. It was top 15 days of my life. <laughs> top 15 days of your life, that's not bad. Yeah, maybe top 10. Top 10, right. Who, if if you could get a call from another artist asking you to collaborate, who would that be? Who would be your dream collaboration? Um, Fiona Apple. Yeah. Yeah. Waiting for the call, Fiona. <laughs> Fiona you're Apple, there. if you're listening. Coming up now to the first year anniversary of Crushing, do you have any time to think about what a third album might look or sound like? I think once I start getting into that headspace of like, what will the album be like? That's when I start writing really bad things. So I think I have to just let whatever happens. I'll just be writing songs and then they will eventually like reveal themselves to me or like it will reveal like what it's going to be instead of the other way around. I think when I've gone into something and been like, okay, my next album is going to be like full of party songs and like my last album was so sad. So I'll make sure the next album's like super upbeat and fun and then, yeah, when I'm trying to write to a, a brief, that's when I write the worst stuff ever. <laughs> so at the moment, I'm just kind of letting it... Letting it come to Letting you. it come to me, however it does. Do you feel like you've worked through the, the topic of the body? Do you feel like you're, you've moved beyond? Oh, no, no, absolutely not. I think that will be something I'll work through until I die. <laughs> and that's okay. Because I think it's like, it, you know, it's not a bad thing, but it's... um. An ongoing process, I guess, for most people. That singer-songwriter Julia Jacqueline, her albums Don't Let the Kids Win and Crushing are available everywhere. You can stream music and purchase music. And like other musicians and performers, Julia's had a huge slate of gigs cancelled due to COVID-19 and the ban on mass gatherings, though she does have some dates for later in the year advertised on her website. Now, before I head out this week, here's another song from Crushing. This is Julia Jacqueline with Don't Know How to Keep Loving You. Benjamin Law and I will be back next week with a fresh episode of Stop Everything, direct from our homes to yours. And remember, you can always, always rate and review Stop Everything on Apple Podcasts, help other people find us, or share Stop Everything right now. If you're listening on a phone, on a podcast app, hit the share button right now and send us to a friend. It's free. So take care, keep your hands clean, and we'll talk again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.